from PRX. Today on Studio 360, one byproduct of China's stupendous economic growth, criminal brotherhoods. People bound together because of the, the crisis that they face or the dramatic transformation of society to somehow protect one another. The great director Jia Zhongke on his new gangster epic, Ash is Purest White. Plus, when mobsters tell you to keep your stand-up act clean. If I did something wrong on the stage, it goes, Hey, Shaco, you mind if I tell you something? Don't do that. And one brave critic does the unthinkable. He loves The Godfather. Part three. People told me that I was supposed to dislike that. But cinematically, it's riveting. It's a Studio 360 hour all about our fascination with mafias. Right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson. The most excited I got watching this year's Oscars was the teaser ad for The Irishman. Martin Scorsese's latest gangster movie. I understand you're a brother of mine. Yeah, yeah, glad to meet you. It features a mob movie dream team. Harvey Keitel and Joe Pesci and Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. I heard you paint houses. Yes, I do. I cannot wait. Long after the actual heyday of the mafia, Americans still love their wise guy stories. And we are spending this hour of Studio 360 looking at organized crime. As a culture, we've obsessed over gangsters from Public Enemy to The Untouchables to The Godfathers to Scarface to The Sopranos to The Wire. So why do writers and filmmakers return over and over to the gangster myth? I think there's a lot of reasons. For one thing, it heightens reality. David Remnick is a writer and editor of The New Yorker. I spoke to him about the enduring appeal of mob stories. If you have an ordinary family, you've got what we all have. If you have a mob family, you have the ordinary family to the nth degree, where loyalty is outsized, where retribution is outsized. Also, you get your ego kicks and you get your id kicks. You have the guilty pleasure of watching people uh, have, uh, commit vi- violence and mayhem. That's the id kick, I guess. You bet. <laughs> and have too much money for no work or at least perverse work and sex of all kinds and all that goes with mob life. And then at the end, they get it in the head. <laughs> so the moralistic ego side or superego side pays off. And in the old mob movies, the government was so afraid of the romanticization uh, of mafia families that they literally had them insert scenes, as with the Howard Hawks movie, Scarface, of either judges giving uh, very censorious pronouncements about the criminals. You're ruthless, immoral, and vicious. There is no place in this country for your type. Or uh, actual warning labels on the movies before and after. But that, of course, has drifted away. Is The Godfather 
which I confess to you, I watched for the first time in my life last weekend. Is The Godfather the best film? I can't believe that. I know. Is it the best gangster film in the genre? Because I, I, I loved it. Um, I expected to love it, and I did. Well, I watch The Godfather, and some of it strikes me as full of hooey. But there's not that much of it. The, and, no, and, and, exactly. Um, for some reason, The Godfather and Godfather Part Two um, have this pull. I wouldn't say it's solely male, but maybe it's um, maybe more male than, than not. Uh, it's about, you know, in a, in a heightened version, about family and about uh, a social group with mayhem and spaghetti. You got it to a boil, you're shoving all your sausage and your meatballs, and that's my trick. Why don't you cut the crap? How's Paulie? Oh, Paulie won't see him no more. Although it was certainly more about the mafia than The Sopranos is. As you've said in, in a piece you wrote, great piece you wrote a couple of years ago in The New Yorker, The Sopranos really isn't about the mob. It's about a small businessman and his family. Yeah, and, and, and this mob family, which is meant to be in Essex County, New Jersey, is at the very end of it. At one point, Tony Soprano in the first season said, I'm, I'm coming in at the end. I think about my father. He never reached the heights like me. But in a lot of ways, he had it better. He had his people. They had their standards. They had pride. Today, what do we got? He, he's very self-aware that, that this is it. You wrote in your piece in The New Yorker that The Sopranos may be the last gasp of the mafia film. Well, one has to add the piece somewhere. And the, and the piece, as I remember, it ends with the, with the great line, Scarface is shot. Scarface in the 30s, not, Scar not Pacino's Scarface. Ed Ed Edward G. Robinson's Star Scarface, and he's clutching his chest, and his final words are... Mother of Mercy, is this the end of Rico? Mother of Mercy, is this the end of Rico? Now, ironically, Rico is his name, but Rico were the racketeering statutes that began to turn the tide against the mafia. Um, it's too tempting, I think for screenwriters and storytellers of all media to, to go back to the mafia. And it, it's, it's both a reality and a kind of myth, an outsized myth where you can place all evils on. That was David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker, back in 2002. And yes, I know that Edward G. Robinson starred in Little Caesar, not Scarface. By the way, since we taped that interview, in addition to The Godfather, I've also seen The Godfather Part 2 and The Godfather Part 3, which is a movie everybody loves to hate, except this guy. My name is Ted Joya. I'm a writer that focuses on music, movies, literature, and popular culture. And my guilty pleasure is The Godfather Part 3. Really? Godfather 3? The credits from the second Godfather are better than Godfather 3. Massacres are a lot like sitting through Godfather 3. Once is enough. You like the third Godfather? I, I've like never met Godfather anyone who liked the third Godfather. I will admit it in public. You've desecrated a classic film. This is worse than Godfather 3. Whoa, whoa, hey, whoa. Let's not say things we can't take back. Now, I have a, a, a different view of this film. I believe this is the essential conclusion to the Corleone saga. I think all of us, we remembered how great the first two movies were. And when we saw the third one, I'm sure I'm not alone, but the poor casting of Sofia Coppola really was a disappointment. Why are you doing this? Why am I doing this? You're using me just to pull the strings. Dad, I want this to bring me closer to you. 
And the Michael Corleone we see in the third part of the installment, he's beset by diabetes, he's got self-doubts, he's got anxieties. I don't think Pacino was ever completely comfortable in that role. When I'm under stress, sometimes this happens. To come to you on such a delicate matter was difficult for me. But I also see the other elements that really deserve more credit. I mean, there are extraordinary scenes there. There's an opening scene where uh, Andy Garcia, uh, as Vincent Mancini, has uh, two people try to break into his apartment, and, and it's a very vivid scene in how he deals with them and dispatches them. I want to do something to convince you. Don't get frightened. Don't do any sudden movements. Just watch me, all right? Do you hear what I said? Okay. There's this amazing scene where a helicopter tries to do a hit going through the ceiling of, of a hotel ballroom. I know people told me that I was supposed to dislike that scene, and they pointed out all the reasons. It was not at all plausible or realistic that if you were going to, to kill somebody in the mafia, you would not rent a helicopter. I mean, this is every step of it made no sense. But the actual experience to me of seeing that scene is exhilarating. I mean, remember North by Northwest, which someone tries to kill Cary Grant with, with a crop dusting plane? Well, you know, give me, a, give me a break. No one in their right mind would ever commit an assassination with a crop dusting plane. But cinematically, it's riveting. I'm a sucker for gangster movies. I'll watch The Godfather every time it's on TV. I'll watch Goodfellas. I mean, I'll watch these over and over again. I probably know a ridiculous amount of dialogue memorized that I will ad-lib in my own true life experiences from day to day. And these movies celebrate vengeance. They celebrate the vendetta. And the brave thing that Coppola did in this final installment is he breaks away from the formula. In the first two parts, Michael Corleone is able to wreak vengeance on his enemies. People have become accustomed to the gangster winning these battles. This is a very dangerous message to, to send to people. There's a moral lesson. There's a lesson. I know this word moral sounds very heavy, but there are lessons for our own life. The true story of the Godfather trilogy is not a man who does all of these acts of violence, but his attempts to extricate himself from the web they tie around him. Go on, my son. Go on. I ordered the death of my brother. I killed my mother's son. I can my <laughs> And I th think people find that uncomfortable because they want to feel that Corleone will triumph. He will achieve all his goals. He'll legitimize the family. He'll get them out of uh, criminal business and into legal activities. People are rooting for him at every step along the way. He has to pay the price for his power hunger and for all the moral laws that he broke in his rise to the top. And I think him faltering and suffering so tremendously from all the violence that he inflicted on others, I think the story of the Corleone family does not make real sense unless you have this final installment. A bigger problem is the casting of Sofia Coppola, who is out of her acting league here. She's supposed to be Andy Garcia's love interest, but no sparks fly. Francis Ford Coppola's daughter had to bear the criticism and the pain and the suffering of him making this particular decision. And the, the odd irony of this is this is the exact echoing of what happens in the plot of The Godfather Part Three, in which the daughter pays the penalty for the overreaching of the father. Mary, please come. 
So in a way, even in its flaw, The Godfather Part Three emphasizes the key message that you get out of the movie. I think audiences back then weren't ready for it. In many ways, I think audiences are more prepared for it now. When you look at Breaking Bad, the main protagonist started out with heroic qualities, but with each passing episode and each passing season, he became more of a villain. Skyler, all the sacrifices that I have made for this family. I believe the same thing is true of The Godfather Part Three. I spent my life protecting my family. Back when it came out in 1990, I don't think people were ready for a character that morphs the way Corleone does and is eventually punished for all his bad decisions. But nowadays, we're able to accept that level of sophistication. And this is a movie that I believe, at some point in the future, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, will be recognized. Just when I thought I was out. As one of the finest American movies of its era. They pull me back in. Ted Joya's book, Music, A Subversive History, will be out in October. Sam Kim produced that segment of Studio 360's Guilty Pleasures series. And by the way, if there's some cultural thing, like The Godfather Part 3, that you love that the rest of the world just does not, let us know about it at incoming at studio360.org. Next up. Yeah, there were certain things you, you didn't talk about. I mean, you couldn't look and say, uh, there's Caesar sitting at the first table. Hiya, Caesar. You know. Old time Vegas comics on playing to a tough crowd. The mobsters who own the clubs. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. This hour we're talking about stories of the criminal underworld, such as those set in the seedy underbelly of Southern California. From Hammett to Chandler in the 1930s and 40s to the modern mystery novels of Sue Grafton. Over the course of 35 years, Grafton wrote a series of books featuring a private detective named Kinsey Milhone, whose tales took place in the fictional city of Santa Teresa, California, and which came out in alphabetical order. A is for alibi in 1982, then B is for burglar, C is for corpse. Starting around G is for gumshoe, they all became bestsellers and stayed that way through the last one. Why is for Yesterday, which appeared in 2017, just before Sue Grafton died. I talked to her in 2013 when she'd published a collection of short stories about her main character called Kinsey and Me. Kinsey is not exactly Grafton's alter ego, but they shared some things in common. Well, when I began this series in 1982, she was 32 years old. She has been married and divorced twice, She owns one dress. She cuts her hair with a pair of nail scissors, cusses like a soldier, uh, very down-to-earth, and has a very wicked eye when it comes to observing human nature. So she's she's kind of an every woman, except that she runs several miles every day and solves crimes. She jogs. It isn't running. Even she would admit that. But she eats a lot of junk food, which I can no longer do myself. When the first one came out in the early 80s, and the first ones, it it was kind of a big deal because your detective was this woman, this young, tough, modern woman. 
Did you have a sense as you as you embarked on this that the time was ripe and maybe overripe for such a detective in fiction? No, I can't claim any prescience. I can't claim I was even aware. I just didn't realize there were no female private investigators. I was raised reading male hard-boiled private detectives. So when it came time to write a mystery novel, a crime novel of my own, my only thought was to play the central part myself because I was already out of my element. I had never, I didn't know what a private investigator did. I had to read up on police procedure and California criminal law and ballistics and toxicology. So I figured my only area of expertise was being female, Hmm. and I better take advantage. You started writing the the Kinsey Milhone novels as a means I read to escape a, a successful career in TV writing. Which is usually with the opposite of how it usually goes, where people who can't make money writing novels say, "Okay, I'm going to go into show business now." But you, you, you didn't like making a lot of money in Hollywood. No, I well, I had done a stint in Hollywood because my second published novel, which is called "The Lolly Madonna War," sold to Hollywood, and that was made into a film in ni- that came out in 1973. Fabulous cast. It was Rod Steiger and Robert Ryan and the young Jeff Bridges. Right? Yes, indeed. It was. It was really a wonderful cast. It was a a wonderful experience. I learned a lot in Hollywood, but I am I am just not a team player. I do not like to write by committee, and I don't like help. So in Hollywood, if you're not interested in collaboration. You just have no business being there, and it it took me a while to figure that out. Whereas writing novels, you, you are in control. You're the screenwriter. You're the director. You're everything. I know, which is good news and the bad. When the work is going well, there's nothing better. When I'm stuck, I wouldn't mind having a small committee <laughs> at my feet to <laughs> help me through the rough passages. There has never been an American TV series or movie version of, of Kinsey Milhone. How, how come? Oh, well, for the very reasons I just detailed. I worked in Hollywood for 15 years, and I was guilty of adaptations, Mm -hmm. probably trashing the work of writers far better than I. I know what they can do. I know how destructive that system can be. For one thing, the first time that character is cast and an actress steps into that role, half my readers will be outraged, and I will also. Plus, they don't buy a book. They buy the rights to the character. And even in 1982, here's how those contracts read. They buy a character throughout the universe in perpetuity in in technologies known and technologies yet to be invented. (laughs) It's like, uh-uh, don't think so. So so you leave that money on the table knowing you're paying some small, some financial price, but... Oh, you... it's no price at all. I tell you, my peace of mind and my good nature are worth quite a bit of money. I just don't want that system coming after me. This A is for, B is for, C is for thing was clearly a, a brilliant scheme to invent to start out with 30 years ago. Have you regretted it ever along the way of, oh, my God, I got to get to Z? (laughs) In some respects, looking back, I think, what nerve, what cheek I had 
at the age of late 30s when I started that book, thinking I could do 26 novels. Yeah. Um, for one thing, I had not even sold A is for Alibi. I sold that book on the basis of 65 pages, never having written a mystery in my life. So I was flying by the seat of my pants. And when A was published, I had no guarantee that there would be a B is for Burglar, let alone C is for Corpse, D is for Deadbeat, and on down the line. And how sad it would have been if you'd ended with E or F. <laughs> exactly. I was happy to get through those letters. I was always waiting for them to say F is for failure. So well, yeah. I was really happy for when done. I... <laughs> See, in fact, there was a review of B is for Bor Burglar that said B is for boring. And I thought I would faint. However, I did survive that wicked comment. So of the 22 previous ones, by my count, 20 of them have been nouns and two of them have been adjectives, uh, I, which are I is for innocent and L is for lawless. Uh, and I was thinking, what could W be? Uh, maybe wicked or or maybe you just want to tell me? I will not tell. For one thing, readers have so much fun trying to guess. And as a minute I shoot off my big mouth, somebody's going to be disappointed. But also, I have changed my mind on many occasions. When I, I thought K was for kidnap, so I blithely set off down that wrong path. And at a certain point, I realized that Kinsey Milhone is a small-time private eye, Kidnapping is a federal crime, and trust me, the FBI is never going to consult her. So I had to toss pages of notes, chapters of the book, and I came up with the title Chaos for Killer because I thought, well, that'll cover a multitude of sins. Doesn't matter what kind of storyline I come up with, it's bound to be applicable. I really don't envy you having to come up with X and Z. I know. X, see, I am hoping that by the time I write X— Somebody will invent an entirely new crime. I hope it's going to be really good and juicy and nasty. And then I can just set out on that road. Sue Grafton, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been fun. I talked with Sue Grafton in 2013. She died in 2017 at age 77. And by the way, when she did end up publishing that novel we discussed, she went with X. Just X, period. Doesn't stand for anything except maybe marking the spot. From Sue Grafton's fictional Southern California city, we move a few hours inland to a real-life hotbed of the underworld, Las Vegas of the 1940s and 50s and 60s. The Mafia co-founded Modern Vegas and owned a lot of its nightclub industry, hiring the singers and dancers and bands and comedians. We're going to hear from a few of the comics who worked in those mobbed-up clubs in the old days. Shecky Green, Kay Ballard, and Larry Storch. My first brush with the Mafia was in 1945, right after the war, and I was <clears throat> going to play the Copacabana. And I went down that afternoon to rehearse with the Dick Stabile Band. I was met at the door by a fellow named Nick Kelly. And Nick Kelly said to me, who are you, kid? Larry Storch, I'm here to tell some jokes. And he said, let me ask you something. Can you drive a car? I said, yes, I drove a truck in the war for a while in the Navy. And I said, Mr. Kelly, I, you'll have to excuse me, 
I've got to tell them my jokes. And he said, never mind about the jokes, kid. The jokes will take care of themselves. You just be ready to drive a car any time we want. You understand that? And I got my first taste of it, and I said to him, yes, Mr. Kelly, anything you say, sir. It's a funny thing about it, because one time I was working in this place, and they were all sitting in the audience, and a guy that was their accountant stole the money and ran away, and they never found him again. His name was Dave, a Jewish last name. They, they, well, I know what they did with him, you know, because the guy couldn't swim. And I came out with a little bag, a satchel, and a little knit cap, and I pretended I was this guy. I saw the money there. I was looking at the thing, and I saw the money there, and I said to myself, well, they got a lot of money. So I took a couple of dollars at the beginning. Then I took a couple of more dollars. Then all of a sudden, they asked me to make a trip. And they loved this thing. They used to come in and say, Hey, Sheck, do that thing, do that thing with the David. Go ahead, do that thing with the, with the hat and the satchel. Yeah, and they would laugh. Well, Shecky was a brawler, and he was fearless on stage. He had a streak of madness in him uh, that was unbelievable and endearing, too, I must say. He could sing. People would write, he doesn't act like as it's biography. Well, it was my biography. It's things that I lived. And one of the reasons why I'm out of show business now is because nothing new has happened to me. Mm. I mean, I got to an age and I very happily married, got a nice big house, and nothing is, I got nothing to talk about, you know. It was very difficult in those days for women to get up in front of, a, in front of an audience and make them laugh. But Kay Ballard in 1945 was the first one to come out that I had ever seen and just roll the, roll the audience up in an aisle. Well, for some reason they liked me and I'm very grateful for that because I think I did more singing than uh, talking. I do all of a sudden my heart sings when I remember little things, your finger stuck into my eye, that Mickey Finn instead of Rye. But I never knew they were the mob. I only knew that after when I heard about The Godfather and things, then I said, my God, I knew them. I thought they were businessmen. You didn't know they were the mob, per se, for the simple reason they own all the nightclubs. I mean, nightclub business was, was what these people belonged in. Um, they bought them because they liked to hang out there. Uh, they bought them because they liked to be around entertainment. And uh, they bought them to, to push people around. No, no, I shouldn't say that. I opened up a nightclub on, uh, on 54th Street in 1960, and my partner was a fellow named Red Pollock, who was a wheeler and a dealer, and he borrowed 10000 from the mob, and he just didn't think it important enough to pay back. <laughs> they, nailed a he, they nailed a crutch to his hotel room door. <clears throat> I said, Red, they want the money back. Ah, don't worry about them. They'll have to get in line. <laughs> well, one night it happened. The vacation was over, and in walked somebody who looked like Luca Brazzi. And my partner took a look at him, and he scooted through the kitchen and out the back door. You, you lived with that kind of a, a fear because you, you heard about people getting shot in, in the garage. You heard about people being stuffed in a, in a sewer you know, people that I knew. And um, 
I used to go around Chicago just looking in sewers and just say, anybody down there? You know. <laughs> it, yeah, it, I, 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 it cast a little fear, you know, which was good. It kept you in line. They were gentlemen, I'm telling you. You would never know, like, the godfather would always be dressed in gray and black tie and white shirt. He was immaculate. No blood on his suit. Maybe on his hands, but not on his suit. <laughs> yeah, there were certain things you, you didn't talk about. You didn't talk about uh, them. I, couldn't, I mean, you couldn't look and say, uh, there's Caesar sitting at the first table. Hiya, Caesar! You know, you couldn't I think Rickles, if they worked for them at that time, would have died. I don't know. There's a lot of things. They were very sensitive. They didn't like dirt in our native tongue, schmutz. They didn't like that. They didn't like talking about sex. They had a, a, an honor about sex. They may be cheating on the wives or something, but that you couldn't talk about. That, that, that was sacred. I, here I go. I'm really being corny now. It was a gentler time. I, I Just like the Sopranos now. I, I've never heard them speak like that, but I guess they do today. I don't know. Has everything changed so completely? They had a certain... Morality. I can't explain it. I don't understand it, but they did. If I did something wrong on the stage, I guess. Hey, Shaco, you mind if I tell you something? Don't do that. It's not class. You're very class on the stage, but don't do that thing. You know what you say uh, with the word damn in it? They don't control it anymore. It's corporation now, so uh, no more glamour. Now it's um, Disney World Businessland, you know. Now it's not as much fun. I miss them. Wherever you guys are, I want you to hear my voice. Come back. We need you. I really mean it. We need you. That's comedian Shecky Green. We also heard from Larry Storch and Kay Ballard, who just died at age 93. Michael May produced our story. Coming up. There are people actually living by this type of code of conduct, code of honors in real life right now in China. And those are the people I want to really capture with this particular film. Depicting the humanity of China's new criminal underworld. They are living among us. This is not something fictional. Director Jia Zhongke on his new gangster epic, Ash is Purest White. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. At the very start of the new movie called Ashes Purest White, this woman and man raise a toast saluting their brotherhood, which is this organization of small time gangsters in provincial China in the early aughts. The movie's Chinese title, literally translated, is something like Sons and Daughter of the Jianghu. That word, Jianghu, is hard to translate and can mean a lot of different things. But one of its meanings refer to these gangster brotherhoods that have developed over the last few decades in the new capitalist China. 
That is the narrow sense of understanding of this concept of Jianghu, so-called underworld. The film's director Jia Zhongke recently stopped by Studio 360 along with an interpreter. People bound together because of the the crisis that they face or the dramatic transformation of society. They have their code of honors and code of behaviors and、uh, the way that they connect with one another to somehow protect. One another, whereas in the Chinese culture, we also can understand it in a broad sense, and you can talk about anyone who is actually drifting around, just trying to seek out opportunities to survive, and we also can understand them as people of Jianghu or children of Jianghu as well. Those sorts of characters are the subject of pretty much all of Jaws films, films like Platform and Still Life and The World, austere, subtle. Realistic depictions of the lives of working people. He is at 48, one of the most celebrated Chinese directors today. Ash is purest white starts in 2001, which was a critical moment in the development of these Jiang Hu underworld societies. That's the year that China joined the World Trade Organization. 更主要的，那是一个中国非常重要的一个转折点，因为 two thousand one is a very very important turning point in the Chinese history because if you look at what happened before two thousand one, very much followed the planned economy and then suddenly changed to the market economy. And economists say the integration of China into the global trade network will speed up the economic reforms, which have helped transform it into a world power. And because of that change and also the economic growth and rapid growth, soon after you do see that certain destruction and changes and evolutions of the many systems that used to be in place, such as the unit system that people will have a place to work, and suddenly they no longer. Are needed, and they somehow being laid off by the factories, and then you will have a people out of job. These are the people bound together because of the human connections among them, whether or not because they are from the same neighborhood, from the same factory, whether or not they are from the same block, and they just naturally、uh, somehow got together and trying to protect、uh, each other, protect one、right. another, forming this Jianghu Brotherhood. Right, and that makes sense. So it was a kind of Collateral effect of the free market because of when they emerged, they were shaped by the violence of the Cultural Revolution period in the 1970s, and by watching the Hong Kong gangster movies by John Woo and other people. 呃，对的，因为江湖的人在中国，呃，就比如说传统意义上 ，There's a gap in terms of the previous crime organizations ended in 1949 till the end of 80s and 90s. The only way they can learn from、uh, somehow. Draw inspiration of what does it mean to have this kind of brotherhood is from watching those、uh, Jiang Wu's films like The Killer or、uh-huh. other films from Hong Kong. From that time, uh, is Jiang Wu. Because at the time, the most popular genre of films within the the video arcade, most of the youth would hang out watching these films, and from these films that they learn what does it mean to be in Jiang Wu, what does it mean to form that kind of human relationship, that kind of brotherhood. We've had this very phenomenon、uh, in the United States as well: real life mobsters 
who model themselves on The Godfather and The Sopranos. But uh, this genre in China and Hong Kong, Zhenghu movies, are they comparable to The Godfather or Goodfellas or whatever? So definitely that they share something in common, but they are very, very, they're categorically different. I can mm. even say that just because there are people actually living by this type of code of conduct, code of honors in real life right now in China. And those are the people I want to really capture with this particular film is that they are living among us. This is not something fictional from novels and from the wuxia films that you watch on the big screen. Like a lot of your movies, Ash's Purest White stars your wife, Zhao Tao, and her performance is magnificent in this film. We see her transform from the turn of the century to now as the country itself is transforming pretty radically. Here's a clip of her confronting a character who has uh, stolen from her. I didn't actually intentionally trying to create a powerful female character for this particular film. At first, actually, she is if using the Americans' understanding of that would be a gangster's mall mm-hmm. and sort of this psychic character. Mm-hmm. But as I was developing the script, I realized that I need to create two characters that they are moving towards two opposite directions. I really want to showcase what's been gained and what's been lost in these 17 years amidst these dramatic transformations of the society. And on the one hand, you have the male character going for money, going for power, going for fame, and really not taking care of human connections, the bond that he used to have with the people around him. On the other hand, you have the female character. You see that she ends up to be the only person who is actually growing stronger with her conviction about this kind of code of honor, mm-hmm. code of conduct within the Jiang Hu context. Um, I'd like to talk about some of the films that shaped you as a, as a director. One of your early favorites was, surprising to me, a movie called Breakin'. <laughs> Set in the early L.A. Uh, hip-hop scene, How did you come across that, and why was that so appealing to the 14-year-old I think it was shot in 1984, but it didn't and I, I was very touched and moved by what I see in terms of the dance moves, but also the rhythms and the beats of this particular subculture. We have a few friends that we watch this film seven times, and each one will memorize certain part of the choreography, mm-hmm. and then we will teach each other the parts that we remember. And based on this particular film and the, our memories of the movements and the dance moves, we actually form a breakdancing group touring around the city. And I remember our group is called Pests. Pests? Pests. <laughs> 
So in addition to Breakin', um, you've given us a list of other films from the last, I don't know, 70 or 80 years that have inspired you. And and first on that list is the famous Vittorio De Sica film Bicycle Thieves uh, from 1948, one of the Italian neorealist films about a working class guy whose bike is stolen and he and his young son then go around Rome trying to track down the thief. Tell me about when you first uh, saw uh, Bicycle Thieves and and why it made such a big impression. So this film actually was released in China. My mom took me to see this film in cinema. When I think about this film, I always go back to the scene when the father and son, they are looking for the bicycles. Then uh, suddenly there was a rain and they were hiding from the rains uh, under the roof and just watching the world passing them by. And I, I think that really made a huge impression on me is that even though that your life may be difficult because of poverty, because of the socioeconomic class that you're born in, there, there's still tender moments or poetic moments in your life that you can still cherish and enjoy, doesn't matter how poor you are. Even though this is an Italian film... Made 40 years earlier. But I can relate to the characters and the, a lot of situations and been depicted in this particular film just because I live that type of impoverished uh, life and th- this sense of poverty... It's very much my experience as well growing up. The people that I'm most familiar with are these people who are on the margin of societies, living in impoverished conditions and area. Another of your favorite films is also from 1948, Spring in a Small Town, uh, directed by the Chinese director Fei Mu, uh, came out the year before the revolution succeeded. It's about a love triangle, a woman, her husband, her husband's old friend. Do you have a... Favorite scene in, in Spring in a Small Town? Memorable scenes from this particular film definitely will be when the female lead knock on the door of the male lead because they used to be lovers. And then they have to somehow contain their emotions and their desires. He has this ability to really tease out and depict that kind of hidden emotions and desires that a lot of Chinese people have but cannot express because of whatever Confucianist traditional rules and traditions that somehow been so oppressive for them to express those feelings freely. So I think that is one of many reasons why I uh, really admire him as a filmmaker. Um, another film on your favorites is the great film by Robert Bresson, the French director, 1956, um, A Man Escaped, which is set in World War II, and it's a French resistance fighter in the Vichy Nazi prison. Pour obtenir une cuillère en fer, l'étain et l'aluminium étant trop mou ou trop cassant, j'ai dû attendre plusieurs distributions de soupe. 
Was there was there either thematically or stylistically something about Bresson's film、um, that has influenced films of yours? One particular scene is memorable for me, and also very influential to my filmmaking is the scenes that just sort of scraping the spoons repeatedly. And I thought that well, maybe they are using this as a weapon, but in fact, it's just something you do when you try to kill time, and it doesn't serve any quote-unquote functional purposes. So to me, that is something I do and practice in my own filmmaking: is to not think about every single shot has to serve certain purpose. That there are times that we need to have this type of Uh, shots that they are there just because that just how people live their lives and certain details that、uh, might not serve any effective purposes、right. uh, in terms of the plot lines,、right. but they are there just to give authenticity to the characters that you are portraying. The last of your favorite films is Ozu's Tokyo Story from 1953, which is about. This elderly couple, not long after the war, who visit Tokyo to visit their adult children, who are just too busy with life to deal with the old folks. Is there one scene in in Tokyo Story that has stayed with you? Ozu's films, Tokyo Stories, definitely one scene comes to mind. Will be the husband and wives sitting down by the roadside, looking. At this landscape of Tokyo City, with chimneys and towers, and using them as a way to talk about how, in terms of modernization or the the growth of the economy, somehow change familial relationship and structure. Now, So yes, I definitely、uh, draw inspirations from、yeah. Ozu's film. Your films are often,、uh, including Ashes,、uh, Purest White, often not entirely positive depictions of Chinese society.、Um, and I want to ask about、um, your relationship over the years with the. Film authorities and the government.、Um, you made your first film in 1995. Then a few years later, they said, "Oh no, no more films." But you kept making films during that period where they said you couldn't.、Uh, how, how did you manage that? That's the only way you can really push the boundaries and expand the horizon is to keep on trying. It's not until the fourth films that I made that、um, it was allowed to be shown in China in theaters. So I do think that、uh, this is what we need to do as filmmakers: is to always be true to your voice and make sure that you are not being silent by anyone, and continue to be the advocate、uh, of your vision and your voice that to be heard by the rest of the world. But、uh, as a director, I do think that the process of censorship and approval is very tiring, very time-consuming. Be that as may, to me, it is still important not only for the people outside of China to be able to see a film about China. It's even more important for Chinese people to have the opportunity to watch a film by a Chinese filmmaker making films about China.
Jiajianke, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here and talking. Thank you. Ash is purest white is in theaters now. Vincent Cheng was our interpreter today. And that's it for this week's show. But before we go, I want to acknowledge and say farewell to Melinda Ward, who is retiring after a remarkable career as head of programming at Public Radio International. Melinda was the driving force behind shows like The World and The Takeaway, and the enabler, more than anybody, of Studio 360. Exactly 20 years ago, Melinda had the audacious idea that public radio really deserved to have a national show devoted to covering the arts and pop culture. And then had the completely crazy idea of recruiting a novelist and former magazine editor with no radio experience to host it. And here we still are. Here I still am. Melinda was the creative executive of whom makers of things dream, devoted to the mission, always had our back, reliably graceful and kind. Melinda Ward, thank you. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is Sandra Lopez Monsalve. Our producers are Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. You're ruthless, immoral, and vicious. There is no place in this country for your type. Thanks for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Quiet music or, or soft music have that stigma of being like passive. But within that, it can be very powerful. And you're like, well, let's talk about this now. The deceptively chill music of Helado Negro. Next time on Studio 360. Because I feel you. My mind.